There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Kevin Patterson. Kevin is the Executive Development Director for Banner Health, a candidate for Phoenix City Council, and a father to two adopted daughters. We had a fascinating conversation that went from the challenges and importance of leadership development in the medical field to the wonderful opportunity as well as challenges that parents face in going through the adoption process in Arizona to how to go about running for city council. If you'd like more information or would like to take action on any of the things that we talked about, click contact us in the show notes and we'll get you what you need to make it happen. Thanks as always for listening. Remember to tell a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today is Kevin Patterson. Kevin is the Executive Development Director for Banner Health here in Phoenix. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on the show. Centauri, mm-hmm. are leaders born or are they made? Oh, that's great. Um, leaders are, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough question. I think there are natural born leaders and mm-hmm. then there's a way to be coached into it. I think everyone could use some, some sort of professional development or personal development throughout their lives. So I would say it's a mix of both. Okay. Is that an acceptable answer? So the answer is yes. Well, you said or. There's no yes to that. You can answer the question however you want. Fair enough. Fine. No, I gave, I gave it Technically a speaking, we're all born. So all leaders are born, right? Technically, yes. I think. Unless, unless, that's, <laughs> unless that's changed. Anywho, Kevin, do you ponder things like that? I'm just laughing at the technicality game. <laughs> yeah, it's not um, fun. Like, <laughs> it's not fun. It's not fun being on this side. I do. I, I, I think about that question a lot, actually. So, uh, tell me more. Okay. <laughs> so at, at Banner, um, so my team oversees the leadership development function for the entire system, and so some of it is uh, proactive and some of it's reactive. So proactive, we get to figure out what we want our leaders to know, do, be. So it becomes part of our strategy that we get to create leaders, the leaders we want. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's reactive. So we'll have leaders that send emails saying, oh my gosh, I've got this director in this department that needs help with XYZ. Can you please help them? And whenever we get to the bottom of it, typically we'll find out that they are missing competencies that allow them to be successful. And with those competencies, you know, we get to dig a little deeper and find out what's their capacity for developing the competencies because all competencies are developable but every now and then you get those mysterious ones when you realize this is just a capacity issue i don't know if you can develop things like compassion by nature it just doesn't seem like you're a compassionate person where others you get to teach them you know everything can be learned so i agree i think it's both that's certainly an interesting thing um, you could probably just in, in regard to not being able to really teach or learn compassion, mm-hmm. you know, I could probably learn all about what compassion is. But if you're not a compassionate person, then... well, compassion is a weird one because whether you are trying new techniques to be compassionate, it's either natural or not. And if you've ever had somebody fake compassion with you, you can smell it a mile away. Right. But in healthcare, you know, you want your nurses to be compassionate. You want your physicians to be compassionate. So it's a top priority competency for us and um, 
we find that leaders are either really good at it, which is why they gravitate towards healthcare, mm-hmm. but the ones that don't, you can pinpoint it to measurements that they're going to suffer because it's a needed competency in the industry. Got it. Hmm. So how do you how do you attempt to how do you try to measure that? I, I assume the first first you try to measure, you kind of do a, a baseline on somebody, mm-hmm. or how does that process work? Well, so a couple different ways. So first of all, we live and die by our patient experience, and so we can measure those in surveys. We can measure them in benchmark industry data, and this year alone, we found out two things that our patients want the most from us. It's they want to be consulted and what's going on with them, meaning they want to be an active part of it. Hmm. Um, but they also want their physician and their providers to listen to them. And so listening and having a two-way dialogue is the number one thing that our patients say that they think they're missing. And so for us, we then make that part of our strategy, teaching leaders how to have two-way dialogues and not walk in and just assume that they know everything, that they you know, can talk to patients in a way that's over their head, so it's teaching them how to involve their patients in the conversation and how to stop and listen to what questions they're asking and how to make sure that they leave feeling like, you know, they're valued. So uh, just from level setting, how many employees are in the banner system, give or take? The banner system now, it's honestly, it's on its way to pushing close to fifty-five to 60,000. So it's, it's Arizona's largest employer right now. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... If it's patients, your your customers, number mm-hmm. one thing is mm-hmm. we want to not necessarily have feedback or input here, mm-hmm. but kind of kick around ideas, and then mm-hmm. we want you to listen. Um, I'm kind of thinking in the back of my head that is sort of the opposite of a traditional doctor, right? Absolutely. The biggest change in that is consumerism. Um, consumerism is driving healthcare right now more than anything. I mean, you can yelp your physician right now. And if you think about five to 10 years ago, you know, Yelp, of course, wasn't in the arena, but there was really no way to have my choice matter. You know, if I look up physicians, I'm just going to go to the most um, reputable one, the closest one, the ones my insurance cover, that as a patient, I'm kind of held hostage by my insurance Mm -hmm. often. And so we would go to doctors whenever we're sick and then just assume that because of their degree and their level of expertise that just whatever they say goes. And they weren't necessarily measured on how kind were they, what was their bedside manner, um, what was your experience like. And so with the changes in healthcare for the um, Affordable Care Act, I mean, we get reimbursed by the experience of patients. And so if a patient tells their insurance company it was the worst experience ever, they're going to question why we need to reimburse that. Mm. Um, Really? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so um, even if it's something like uh, preventative care, so if, if I go to the physician for a certain ailment and they don't do a full diagnostic to find out what would keep me from coming back sick, um, Medicare cannot reimburse that. My insurance cannot reimburse that because they didn't do everything that they needed to be preventative. Mm-hmm. And so the experience matters more than anything because consumers are able to pick and choose where they want to go, especially the marketplace now. I mean, they can pretty much custom build their plan based on what their needs are. So physicians are having to really change how they provide care in order to stay relevant in today's healthcare. And what does that look like in um, leadership development and coaching? Well, it's it's fascinating because you take a physician who, by all rights, 
generally tends to be the most educated person in any room they're in. Right. Um, and that we trust emphatically with care or we wouldn't go to them. So highly respected, highly regarded. Um, the one thing that they didn't get, though, was any sort of leadership training typically in their program. Um, also, the amount of studying and I guess kind of going underground, <laughs> you know, in order to do all of their clinicals, in order to do all their labs, in order to get through the entire program and their residencies, what happens is they kind of emerge 10 years later and they've missed some of those fundamental pieces of learning relationship skills, learning uh, community building skills. Mm. They, they come out super educated, ready to go, highly qualified to be a physician, and they realize sometimes the hard way that being a good bedside manner physician having that extra care, that extra compassion, and demonstrating those leadership competencies, things like motivating their employees. I'm used to saying employees, but motivating their patients. Um, you know, for example, let's say you've got somebody who, you know, is a heart patient and they need to exercise more. I think it's fair to say that not many of us just love working out. If, if you do, it's become a habit for you over the years. But Physicians have to be able to motivate their patients to do these things that take care of their health. That if they're not motivating, that's a leadership competency that can really make or break the experience for a patient. We talked about listening being a competency. We talked about compassion being a competency. But these are all things that are more leadership traits, not quite those managerial traits or not quite even the clinical traits that you would think would be from um, a physician. And those that demonstrate leadership skills have really been proven to be some of our most successful physicians across the board. Which I totally, totally understand. Am I, and I guess instead of asking if I'm right or wrong, I'll make the statement that when physicians are going through medical school and in residency, mm -hmm. it's so incredibly competitive that it is running contrary to being a good community person or being kind. Yeah, right. It's, yeah. it's, so, it's so cutthroat. So when they emerge, well, now we need to sort of retrain. Absolutely. And um, it, it's a really different perspective. It's almost a paradigm shift for what you would think would be going on with physicians because, you know, they, they come out and, we, like I said, we trust them with our health. We trust them to make these decisions for us in our health. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, I don't know if the last time you were ever sick or in an emergency department in a hospital, but if you've ever heard the nurses and the physicians fighting with each other, or they say different things, or it makes it seem like it's not a cohesive group, those are the make or break signs right now that patients are saying, I don't know if I trust the care at the place. If mm. everyone's not a unified front. They're not on the same page. If, yeah, if it doesn't seem like everyone gets along, that physicians, um, and, and rightfully so, they often view their job as life or death, which it is. But if you look at what they prioritize, Often it's, I prioritize the safety of my patient first. I prioritize the protocols from which I practice medicine, you know, high up there, and you want them to. However, at the same time, what they don't prioritize because they weren't taught to, and in life or death situations of survival, you can prioritize less are my leadership competencies. But we have structures here now for like our chief medical officers in which they actually lead teams of physicians that that's where it really makes the difference of if you're going to be a physician leader, you got to learn how to be a leader. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it, our non-clinical staff who went through you know, business school or went through um, management training, they were taught to be leaders mm -hmm. and they learned their discipline second. <clears throat> so it's kind of really getting the best of both of those worlds and teaching physicians to be leaders, but teaching our non-clinical leaders how to understand the clinical setting 
put it together, um, we have a motto here that we either directly serve patients or we serve those who do. How many, um, of the 55,000, about what percentage is uh, clinical? Um, I would say well over, uh, well over 60% is clinical. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. But most of our workforce um, are nurses and nurse managers and all that. <laughs> I just had uh, this the Star Trek flashback where the original Star Trek were, were Bones, the doctor, would be like, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a coffee maker. <laughs> Do you get pushback and they say, you know what, my job is to, yes, to, to make lives. these people well, yes. not make them feel warm and fuzzy? Absolutely. Um, and so part of it is, it's a push-pull effect with that. Part of it is setting the expectations that, for example, at Banner Health, it is, it is required that you demonstrate leadership behaviors. And if not, then you're not going to succeed in this world. Um, however, it's having the compassion to recognize those that have never been taught to do it and giving them the opportunities that so through some of our leadership development programs we can take clinical leaders and turn them into really strong leaders mm-hmm. um, so we can provide it however they also have to, to take it and grow it and, and demonstrate it um, so it is an expectation here that all of our leaders abide by our, our values abide by the behaviors that are core to who we are um, and we give them plenty of chances to, to learn it so banner is in the essentially the business of medicine, mm-hmm. delivering medicine, and in a more competitive world where patients want to be listened to and, and have a hand in this, you must provide a better product. Mm-hmm. So that's why you are doing what you are doing. Correct. And how long has that been the philosophy of Banner? Has that always been? Is that new? You know, ever since I've been here, um, leadership has always mattered at Banner. Um, I've been really grateful that I've never had to convince, you know, our senior leaders to get on board with what I do. Um, I've never really had to twist too many arms to get the funding or the approval for what I do, which is great. Um, I've worked for organizations before where leadership development's prioritized really low, and when they need to make strategic cuts, development's the first thing they do. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, they will get what they pay for. (laughs) But Banner, luckily, has never put leadership development on the chopping block, so I'm really lucky there. Um, You know, one thing I will say that has been helpful with it is technology, honestly. Um, You know, as we move to be more technologically advanced, the mission of Banner has been to make healthcare easier. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the complaints nationwide right now, is that healthcare, you know, is so complex. And, you know, we heard President Trump make the statement that you didn't realize it was so complex. Well, those of us that live it every day know it's really complex. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. Nobody knew that it would be this hard. Who knew? Nobody did. Well, I work with 55,000 plus people that told you, yes, it is our daily complication every day. It's hard, sir. It is. And if it's hard for us internal, I can't imagine how hard it is for the patients to have to figure it figured out. And so... No doubt about that. So yeah, so that's our big mission is to make make life easier by making healthcare easier and in doing that leaders have to care i'm i've always been very interested in organizational leadership and for my money it always starts at the top so mm-hmm. you're talking about how it's obviously currently the state where they think it's extremely important and i would say that if that ever changed then the organization's going to mm-hmm. do poorly mm-hmm. so do you think that that's true as well like 
from your standpoint, an organizational leadership doesn't start with the top and they, they set the agenda and empower you to be able to do your work? Absolutely. Um, our president CEO, Peter Fine, uh, we have a new leader program every month that we run because mm-hmm. we bring on so many new leaders that we have a new, new leadership experience program that we run once a month. And on day one, 8 o'clock, he's the first person there to kick off each month. Um, I can count on one hand over the, over the last number of years, one hand the amount of times he has not made it. So for him to prioritize that every month, you know, definitely shows that he wants to be the first person to welcome them mm-hmm. and the first person to set the expectation that you're a leader at Banner Health and here's what that means. So from the top down, he makes it his priority, which is, you know, insanely important for us. Um, second, the, the leader that I report to that reports directly to him, um, she's our senior vice president of HR, that is her number one thing. We need strong leaders, full of courage, full of accountability, and can get results by being the best leader they can be. So for me, as long as I can meet their needs, you know, their vision of leadership, it directly aligns with what my team does. Courage and accountability, those are great words right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kevin, um, that is your professional life and mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit, spend a little bit of time about um, the work that you've done with um, Project Jigsaw and you and your two daughters. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about that story and how that came about? Absolutely. Um, so my husband, David, and I, we've been together for over 10 years now. And um, in 2009, we decided, let's <laughs> let's get married. And then we forgot, oh, in Arizona, you can. Right. <laughs> so let's do a commitment ceremony that was the most, you know, official it could be for us at the time. And so we had a commitment ceremony in 2009 and had about 200 of our closest friends and family there. It was huge. It was fun. It was a great night. And then shortly after we started having the conversation about kids, where do kids fit in the picture? And I was actually unsure at the time. I didn't know if I wanted kids. Um, he did though, hundred percent. He's got a big family with lots of nephews. And, um, so finally, once we got on the same page, we decided let's figure out how to expand our family. And we learned very quickly that because we were not legally married, we could both not be adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. Only one of us could. So on paper at the time, it made sense for me to be the adoptive parent. And so we went through an 18-month process full of hurdles, full of barriers for same-sex couples that um, it really got me a little enraged. Honestly, I was really upset and angry because... We had, at the time, over 19,000 kids in the system who needed loving homes, yet they, from the DCS system, when I say they, the state was making it as hard as possible for us to take these kids. Um, For example, there is uh, written in several policies in the state of Arizona that there is a preferred order in which uh, kids are placed in families. The first is for a mom-dad, so a traditional family. The second would be for a single mother. The third would be for a kinship, so a friend or family that knows the child. The third would be for a single dad. The third would, uh, the fourth would be for an out-of-state. And the fifth would be for a same-sex family. Wow. So we were told along the way, um, you know, we have lots of kids that need to go to homes. Be prepared for a child to be immediately placed with you whenever you get licensed. Um, and then they would look at David and I and say, except for you guys, it's going to take you guys a long time because the state doesn't want to place with you. So for that reason, we had lots of kids come and go. And what I mean by that is the state would drop the kids off and they would stay with us for a period of time for us to get to know them. 
And then they would call and say, we found a more suitable home for them. Mm. And by suitable, they meant mom, dad. And so they would come get the kids um, and take them out of the house to a traditional family. And um, it's heartbreaking. It's no heartbreaking kidding. to go through that because we want to expand our family just as much as any other family that was in the program did. And one time we even had a uh, caseworker say, we're on our way to you know your house with two boys. They're so excited to meet you. And we realized we had nothing for little boys. So all of our family banded together and we like divided and conquered, went to Target. Everybody got different things, came over six o'clock with this care package of stuff for these kids. They never showed up. And the caseworker called us the next day and said, we're really sorry. We left you hanging. We actually found a family that was more suitable and we took uh. them there instead. And so it's tough because our caseworker said, you know, we've never had a more honestly a more sentimental great case study of what a great home you can provide and it sucks that we have to play by the state rules and that we're not able to place kids with you and so finally I told the caseworker and David I said I can't do this anymore like it just it hurts my heart to not feel like I'm good enough you know um, so I made a huge declaration to the agency I said if this child that you're gonna place with us next is not eligible for full adoption meaning severed ties with their parents. I don't want to meet them. I can't. And so they called us a week later and said, we have two girls who have no family and they actually need to be adopted immediately. And so they brought them over that night. There's no preparation. And when you hear stories about they drop them off with their garbage bag full of clothes and mm -hmm. the one teddy bear, it's so true. And they show up and it's just like an instant family. And so that's great, but at the same time, it's um, terrifying because you don't get to like get to know them a little bit before it becomes real. <laughs> and at the time, they were two and five, and um, they were wonderful. We got really lucky that there wasn't a lot of behavioral challenges that we had to work through, but that's when our problems started. So we realized then, at the time, I was going through a medical challenge that it, the outcome wasn't known. Like, I, I honestly, Centauri knows this, he's known me for a while. Um, going through cancer, I didn't know what my outcome was going to be. But I realized that if I were to die, that nothing would happen for them. They would go back into the system because David was not their parent. Mm. So they would remove them unless my family, you know, rallied around them and petitioned to keep them. So to protect the family, we were told the only way that you can do this is to sue the state of Arizona for marriage equality. So we did. And it took us about a year, and we won our case, which overturned the marriage ban, and that's where same-sex marriage was allowed in Arizona. Oh, great job. Yeah, it was it was a lot of work, but it was really, really cool. Um, so at that time, then David could now go back and be listed as a second parent. So we had to go back through another case to, to get him rights. But at the time, we realized like it's because David and I knew how to navigate the government system in Arizona. We knew how to navigate the DCS. We knew how to navigate the legislature. We knew how to get what we needed. But that's not normal. Right. Other families don't. And so for the one family like ours that knew how to get through the system and push through the barriers, we realized there's lots of families that don't have this advocacy. So we started Project Jigsaw, which was a um, combination of a partnership between Arizona's Children Association because they truly, in my opinion, and I'm biased, I will say they are the best in the state for foster and adoption because 
they advocate for the child, not for their doctrine, not for their biases. They do what's best for the child. Um, so it was a partnership for Arizona's Children's Association and Equality Arizona, um, who is the state's LGBT rights organization, to really come together and band together and say, let's reduce the number of kids in the system by removing barriers that prevent loving homes from being able to foster and adopt. Well, congratulations. Thank you. What was the term that they kept using? More suitable? More suitable. Man, I was thinking, if I hear that term one more time, I'm going to smash something. Uh, you know, I, I had one of those. <laughs> I had like a dramatic moment. Like, <laughs> I did. I had my diva moment one time where somebody told it to me, and I said, more suitable. What does that even mean? Say it to my face. You don't think I'm That's good enough. <laughs> like, I like, lost it. Right? <laughs> I could totally see that. It is because... Just Really? Really more suitable? Because right. you see on, on paper, like, you know, we're both educated. We have a beautiful home. We've right. got lots of friends and family that have told stories about us as part of our home study. And to be told you're not suitable, it's like, what more could I do to show you just how qualified I am? My blood is boiling. I know. With oh. two young daughters, do you see, just wanted to circle back, actually, on the leadership development, do you see that being played out in schools? So you say docs don't get it through medical school, but is there a time in development that you feel that kids, your kids age 7 and 10, are getting this in, in classrooms? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think with, with kids, though, in the classroom with leadership development, it's a matter of helping them funnel it in the right direction. <laughs> you know, for example, I have, um, I have a daughter who's shy. Um, she's my oldest one. She's shy in the classroom, doesn't like to read out loud, doesn't like to volunteer, and her teachers let her be okay with it. And at home, we teach her how to use her voice, how to push through those feelings of, you know, it's okay to be shy, it's okay to be an introvert, but how do you still let your voice be heard? And in the classroom, sometimes I notice that the teachers don't challenge them to push through some of those barriers that we would teach leaders in a business setting to push through your barriers. So for me, I've had to work with her teachers to say, respect her introversion, but don't let her be a victim to it. Encourage her to push through. Where my little one, she is the exact opposite. She will get you into a scheme that you don't even realize you're a part of. <laughs> and she is a little moneymaker. Uh, she is a little business savvy person on the playground. I've stayed on the playground to watch her. She can get, so that they went through a friendship bracelet craze where they were making friendship bracelets to each other for each other. And I noticed one lunch where I went up there to just hang out on the playground with them. She somehow swindled 10 kids out of their friendship bracelets and then came up to me and said, I'm everyone's best friend. Look at all my bracelets. <laughs> I watched her. She hustled everyone on that playground. So for her, it's about teaching her boundaries of, <laughs> yes, you're charming. Yes, you're influential. <laughs> yes, you can create a vision and purpose that everyone can get behind. But here's how you also give back and make sure that you're doing things for the greater good. So kids, you know, to your earliest point, kids do demonstrate those natural-born tendencies um, but ones like my oldest daughter, who necessarily don't, it's teaching her how to do it. And from what you see on uh, with docs, is that not something that they, um, I don't know much about the application process, but is that not something they look for as they enter into uh, med school or residency? You know, you'd be surprised. Um, I, You know, not actually going through med school myself, I can say I would think that they're teaching them how to be successful in this new way because some of the new docs that are younger that are coming out of residency I've noticed that when we hire them, they're naturally, I would say, stronger leaders than the ones a decade ago. So I can see that what they're teaching them to do, and even in their residency programs, they're 
they're giving attention to leadership development because they're coming out of the programs a little more uh, stronger leaders than I've seen in the past. Nice. I think that, that one of the things that I've seen over the years of getting buy-in from people that are working your organization, whatever the organization may be, is um, people support what they help create. Mm -hmm. So did you give, and I think with little kids too, mm -hmm. if you just tell them this is how it's going to be, they're mm -hmm. probably going to thumb their nose at you. But Absolutely. If, if you work together with them and they give you input, kind of like what patients want, mm -hmm. um, has that been something that you've worked with with the existing doctors to develop the, the, the program, or how, how does that work? Absolutely, so most of the people on my team, they have some sort of an education background, mm. whether it's you know curriculum and instruction design background, um, you know educational technology, but to be on my team, that's kind of the qualification, is to have some sort of an understanding of learning and development. So what we can do is provide best practices to assure that learning is happening, that we can measure the outcomes into performance-based you know, demonstration, where we have to partner with like, you know, groups like our physicians and our docs are the subject matter content. You know, I always joke with my department that I can teach somebody how to fly a plane, and I've never been a pilot, because that's good instructional design. Mm -hmm. But the way I can teach people to fly a good plane is I have to use a pilot to help me write a manual. So my expertise is how to write the manual. Mm. Their expertise is, you know, walk me through the process of how to, you know, fly a plane, how to, you know, build a plane, how to take apart an engine. And then let me put it into a concept where I can actually make sure that the learning happens. Mm. So for our doctors to teach them to be really good physicians, I have to understand it from their world because if they can't apply it immediately, adult learning theory says they're not going to. You know, so kids, they can absorb a ton of information to recall in a test, and then the second they take the test, it's out of sight, out of mind. Adults, they won't even absorb the information if they haven't yet determined that it's meaningful, it's relevant, and that it's in bite-sized chunks. Hmm. So for us to do that, we have to get the docs in there to tell us, if we're going to teach compassion, what does it look like in the OR? What does it look like in the ER? What does it look like in a med surge room? Hmm. And they have to be the ones that help us build the examples, the activities, the exercises, and we just package it in a way where people can learn, practice, and apply. Got it. I think that makes all sense in the world. Nice. Um, and I also have written down in my, the thing I wanted to talk to you about as you're developing this program is um, if you give somebody too little, they're not going to be engaged. If you give them too much, then you're going to overwhelm them. So, but you touched on that a little bit, right, with, with adult learning. It is. It's that bite-sized chunk. And it's about staying ahead of the, the learning trends, too. I mean, um, you know, for example, if you look at some of the best vendors out there and see how they approach learning and development, Skillsoft is an example of that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. But they are a vendor that they can take, you know, a competency like Courage, for example, and they can break it down into here are 10 three-minute videos about Courage. Here is an activity you can do in five to seven minutes. Here's a quick assessment of your knowledge that takes you know, three questions. And you can almost build a program where people get bite-sized chunks and they can apply it to their day in ways that they see fit. Um, so you know, we're honestly moving away from that trend where you have to sit in a lecture hall and hear somebody teach for eight hours. You know, we just don't think like that mm. anymore. Did we ever? I, I'm, I'm not I sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. It, that's, it's... I have a, 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 a little a baby, and you start to think about looking into the future about what education is going to look like, and I just 
I question whether or not you're going to be sitting in the classroom for, for eight hours a day, which is beyond the scope of our conversation today. But So how you design that program, how you roll it out, technology has really got to help with that. Absolutely. It's really got to help with that. That's a very powerful thing. So do you, I'm uh, just wondering from the implementation standpoint, do you do everything in a central location? Um, with 55,000 people, I know that a lot of it has to be remote, but probably a lot of this has to be high touch with you and your team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. so, um, so I have a team of awesome people that sit here in this building with us in Central Phoenix. And um, we also have a liaison community of our HR business partners. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about kind of a centralized function, we're the learning hub. So they, they plug into us, we develop the resources, we make it accessible, and then they plug into us and then they take it out to their leaders that are part of their unit. So each hospital, for example, has an HR business partner that they're the ones in charge of being the talent developers of that hospital, but they plug into us to get the content. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And I saw on your LinkedIn profile that you are on faculty and an assistant professor at Grand Canyon and Western International. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so in, in years past, it, this was one of the most rewarding experiences ever. So for Grand Canyon, um, I... I this is so wild. So I got certified to teach in the K through 12 system. And I actually taught at Vicky Romero High School in the Wilson School District, which is one of our, um, in one of our neighborhoods that is underserved. And so a lot of my kids, when I got the roster, um, believe it or not, they were at the poverty level. Some were considered homeless because they didn't have a permanent address and went, you know, slept at different couches every night. I had a few that were on house arrest. Like it was, it was a tough group of kids that, you know, you can tell that the education, this is where they really got nurtured because mm -hmm. the demographic and what happened in their home life, you could tell that that's where they might be lacking. And so for me, I was told that the class I was teaching, which was um, personality theories, which is a psychology course, that it would be their gateway class into an associate's program at Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. And so if they do well in my class, it meant that they were automatically uh, matriculated in as a student at Grand Canyon and so for me that was a huge burden because it's a pressure it's yeah, a lot of pressure, pressure yeah. everybody gets an A <laughs> really, yeah so you're, you're talking to a learning nerd here who I want to make sure people are learning so you know you're gonna to have to work for that A but at the same time to have the burden to say I don't want to hold anyone back I don't want to hold anyone back that would not necessarily have another chance or access to education <laughs> so I spent a lot I hope nobody listening to this hears this and thinks like oh my gosh you went too far um, but I gave every kid in there my cell phone and said, if you think you're going to miss a deadline, I expect a phone call because we're going to give you extra credit. We're going to work on deadlines. We're going to do this. So I met lots of kids outside of work to help them study for their test, help them really get the information. And two cool stories came out of that. One night, I remember getting a phone call at one o'clock in the morning from one of the students, which you don't ever want to be woken up at one o'clock in the morning by a high school senior. Mm -hmm. But he said, Mr. Patterson, I just don't know what to do, but I have nowhere to go. And it makes me emotional to think about it. It really does. But he said, um, I was kicked out of my house and I have nowhere to go. And he said, I'm in an alley right now on 32nd Street in Van Buren. And so I got up and went and got him in the middle of the night and took him to a place where he could stay. Um, he couldn't stay at my house, but I, I took him to a place where he was safe. And for me, I still hear from him. Wow. As I imagine. Wow. One night, I went to their high school graduation, and he said, you've done more for me in that night than my parents have ever done. And it was moments like that that you realize, like, on paper, these kids look like they're going to struggle and they're not going to make it. 
but oftentimes what they need is love and they need support. Another, which is kind of cool at Banner, was I was walking in what was formerly Banner Good Samaritan Hospital downtown, uh, University Medical Center Phoenix now, and I heard Mr. Patterson, and I turned around, and there was one of my students who was a nurse, an RN, and I remember her saying, I want to go to RN school, but I don't know if I have the grades to make it in. And I looked her up, and she used that class to matriculate into Grand Canyon and went through nursing school. So when you get to see stuff like that, uh, it's a really rewarding piece. Um, so at Western International um, was more of a virtual an online classroom where I got to teach working adults. Um, I taught group dynamics um, and some courses in their uh, leadership uh, leadership degree program. Well, that's awesome. <clears throat> I was listening to uh, listening to, to some podcasts recently, and they talked about how you can probably count on one, hopefully two hands, but usually one, how many teachers have really made an impact in your lives. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe kind of a sad commentary, but that certainly sounds like you're one of those people that people are counting on their hands as somebody's made a big difference in their lives. So. It was fun. You know, I don't know if you <clears throat> those listening or you guys, I don't know if you've ever had those endeavors that you put your like total heart and soul in. It doesn't pay well. Mm-hmm. And everything I wanted to do for them, I realized just how hard teachers have it. You know, because if I wanted to do something special, I had to go buy it. Yeah, you had to do it. You know, if yeah. I wanted to do something outside of the lesson plan, I had to do it off the clock and figure out how to make it work in the classroom. But there's so much that teachers do that they don't get acknowledged for. Um, but that was one of those moments where I look back and think, I got, you know, I gave it my heart and soul and did not get a lot of return for it, right. which is, I think being a teacher sometimes is a very thankless job. No doubt about it. Oftentimes the things that are most most worthwhile are those uh, <clears throat> thankless or, or, or volunteer type opportunities. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> so Kevin, um, also new big um, major announcement in your life, you're running for city council. So a big piece of what we're doing, uh, the point of our podcast is to move from awareness to action. So maybe at a very high level, talk about some of the issues that are bubbling up for you as you're, mm-hmm. as you're running. You know, um, it was a huge decision to make to run for city council because you know, not only do I work at Banner full-time, but running a campaign is, is full-time as well. So I feel like I'm doing two full-time jobs every day. Um, you know, but the decision to do that really was aimed at the goal of making Phoenix a city that works for everyone. And I think some of the stories I've shared with you that I've realized, you know, being a student you know, in a impoverished neighborhood, it doesn't always work for everyone. And having access to quality education, it doesn't always work for everyone. Even the safety in the neighborhoods, which is at the city level, which is what city council would look at, not all neighborhoods are safe, you know? And so that is a huge piece. Um, Another is working with Equality Arizona, as I mentioned, and doing Project Jigsaw has been a huge eye-opener to city-level access um, to to places where people feel safe and welcomed. And so how to make it a place where non-discrimination at the city level is not something that's pervasive. Um, and even in Banner Health, making sure that everyone has access to health care and, you know, questioning why we limit some access and why, you know, certain people who need it the most often have the hardest time getting it. And how can we change change that? That my worldview that I see living in Phoenix, I've had to, you know, fight for a lot of the access issues that make it a city that works for me, that I realize that that's not available to everyone. And so that was my huge indicator to run for city council is to figure out, you know, you can start at the top to realize that the national rhetoric, it's, it's rough right now. 
And as it trickles down into states and into cities, the you know resistance to anything that is not suitable for our communities, it starts local. And so for me, that's really, really what I'm going for. So I think, you know, now getting into the race and, and starting my platform and really getting support at the city level has been making sure that Phoenix is a place that continues to grow responsibly. You know, there's a lot of people moving to Phoenix because of the potential we have and the strides we've made. And so it really is about how do we continue to grow responsibly to make sure that we are allowing for this growth. Another one is making sure that our neighborhoods are safe and making sure that um, we're doing everything we can to preserve the historic neighborhoods we're proud of, but to also keep the neighborhoods that are zoned for development. How do we develop them responsibly um, in ways that everyone is safe and that we can generate revenue for the state of Arizona and the city of Phoenix? Um, and then third, definitely making sure that we use efficient public services, you know, um, making sure that we're not wasting is, is a huge piece here. Have you run for office in the past of any kind? Does student body vice president in high school account? Boom. It, 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 it absolutely does. does. <laughs> Boom. No, I've not ran for public office. This is a first for me. And just so our listeners can kind of understand, is there a form that you fill out that says I'm running for, for city council? Or how does what that is even, the process? How does that even start? Well, okay. So it's it's definitely something I would not recommend just on a whim, wake up one morning and say I'm going to go do it. Um, I'm, I'm learning how organized many of our legislative districts are here in Phoenix. Uh, for example, the two that I work with, Legislative District 18 and 28, what's well, in Ahwatukee is 18 and North Central Phoenix is, is 28. Um, you know, they have plans for years on how they can make sure that the seats go to the parties that they're looking for, that they have the candidates that fit the bill. And so to just kind of go in there and rock their world, Throwing it's, a grenade it's in the middle of it. Yeah, not, yeah. not advised. Hey, right. <laughs> My name's Kevin. Yeah, maybe you've heard Hi of guys. Oh, I'm going to run. <laughs> what kind of work so. are you guys doing here? All right, great. We'll see you later. So I'm thinking about running for governor. No. So um, for me, it really was about getting to know the leaders in these districts to talk through, um, first, my qualifications and my desire to serve the community, um, but to hear from them, what kind of candidates are you looking for for races that are imminent? And the city council race was something that um, both districts jumped on and said, we really need... Um, qualified candidates for this, you know, to go up against the incumbent because it, it's a tough race mm-hmm. in, in this district. So for me, it was getting the support of the, the, the districts that I would represent. Um, second, it is definitely clearing it through your family because all spare time during the election season is going to go to phone banking, knocking on doors, getting signatures, fundraising, that the family needs to be a part of it because uh, family plays a huge piece in demonstrating your values. Um, as well as, you know, it, you're taking from them. And so they are sacrificing their time as well. So once I learned that um, David was okay with it and that divorce was not on the horizon, that adds to the decision to, to do it. So it's getting support from the districts, getting support from your family, um, and then really starting to really put yourself out there in vulnerable and courageous ways um, to the community to let them know, here's what I see the need in the community and here's what I want to do to serve you. This can't be a, um, a decision to where it's about, you know, increasing my profile in the community. It truly is remembering that you are there for your constituents. And it's about listening. It's not about telling. It's about being a part of solutions, not, you know, creating opportunities for me to be Superman in the community. Mm-hmm. It really is about finding what would make 
Phoenix a better city for you to live in? And how do I advocate for that at the highest level? So did you find all this out on your own? Or is there some, so if, if, if someone's listening and they're like, me too, I want to be like Kevin, I want to run. What is their, where do they find the resources? You know, the, the first thing that I did was surround myself with people that could keep me informed. It's unrealistic to say that even running for city council that I know everything about the city of Phoenix, mm-hmm. I don't. And I even learn of problems where I have to ask questions to people who are advising me. You know, walk me through why this is a problem. Help me understand this. So being patient with yourself and realizing you don't have to know it all is the first level of freedom. <laughs> the second is to get involved. You know, find out who your local, you know, your legislators are. Find out who your city council district is. Find out where you can go to district meetings. Find out where you can get involved. Be a precinct committee person that walks neighborhoods during election cycles. Um, getting involved is the number one way, way to do it. Mm. Go to events, support political events, support your local candidates. You know, it's a way to hear what they care about. And it's also a way for you to voice your um, concern. So that's how I did it. I started to surround myself by people who were politically minded and helped me kind of understand that some of the ways that I've had to navigate through the city of Phoenix, that I can use that for political means and over the years being able to gain that support to where um, by the time I announced my candidacy, you know, I was definitely humbled and surprised by the quick amount of support because I had positioned myself by having these strategic conversations. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, that uh, that certainly answers the question about how do you actually take action on that. So if for, for, for the people that are listening that mm-hmm. are interested in learning more about leadership development, mm-hmm. and I think that you can develop leadership, you can do that personally and become a better leader, or certainly with your family, or just with within the sphere of, of influence that every one of us has, what what advice would you give to somebody that wanted to become a better leader if it's reading or studying up? Sure. Um, I can tell you the membership that I'm a part of that has been you know, the biggest return on investment and worth its weight in gold is the Harvard Business Review. Um, mm. You know, I, I get their magazines. They are expensive. So if you ever see them on the newsstand, they're the ones that are like 13 or 14 bucks. Um, but... <clears throat> Every single article is just so well-researched, and it can give really practical ways to increase leadership. When you're a member of Harvard Business Review, you're also a member to their online portal, which has limitless videos, podcasts, articles, case studies, ways to get involved with leadership. Um, I'm a big reader, and the psychology background in me also loves understanding people better. And the best book I've ever read for understanding people is a book called Emergenetics. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll spell it E M E R G E N E T I C. I look it on my bookshelf. I was starting to spell things that I couldn't finish. Emergenetics, and so it, it's the science of figuring out figuring out how we emerge from our genetics. If you've you know ever studied the nature versus nurture, it's a great way to understand people because if I technically if I meet your parents, I might understand a little bit more about you because. I'm seeing how your mom and dad behave right. and that's how you were nurtured. But a lot of it is also understanding habits and you know idiosyncrasies of people that I would describe it as I've always been this way, I've always done it this way. And it's understanding how people emerge from their genetics. And it takes mm-hmm. a look at four thinking preferences that are common among everyone and three main behavior styles that are demonstrated to the world at large. And so you can go to imagenetics.com and understand 
you know, how to take your own assessment so you can see your thinking preferences and what your profile looks like. But my team uses it almost weekly to help understand each other. And we use them in our leadership development programs to help leaders understand how they show up to their teams and ways that they can actually hire the right people, mm -hmm. get the best out of those that are currently on their team, and how to develop people to be more, better, different, in alignment with the development plan. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. And finally, mm -hmm. folks that were thinking about adoption, okay. your, your, your advice to them. Ooh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> wow. Okay, so I would classify myself as an optimist. I typically see the glass half full on most things. I will say on this situation, I would love to be more of a realist and let you know that there are huge pros and cons to adopting. The biggest con I would say is it's just really hard work. Um, whether you've adopted kids or you've had your own biologically, being a parent is probably the hardest hat that I wear in a 24-hour period. Um, I would take a ruthless leader in a boardroom. I would take you know, a councilman opponent that wants to sling insults any day over the heartbreak of raising a child because you will go to bed every night questioning, have I done the right thing? How have I messed up my child today? And you can constantly measure yourself <laughs> that you haven't done enough. Um, or that you've damaged them in some way. So first of all, just understanding it is a hard decision to make to be a parent and one that shouldn't be taken lightly. Second is know your home. Uh, for example, if you have a big family and have nieces and nephews and have other kids, know what dynamic you want to bring into your family. Because if you bring in a child, for example, that has abusive tendencies or hurts animals or has harmed other kids, you know, you might think you're doing the right thing by giving this child a home and that you can change them, fix them, help them. But if every family gathering, you're having to keep that child separate from all the kids in your family, mm -hmm. that child does not fit with your family. And they would actually need more of a therapeutic home that can work through some of their issues that might not be suitable for you. So for David and I, the biggest tip we've been able to tell people is know the types of behaviors that you can put up with and the ones that you can't. Because the kids in the system, for the most part, um, and I'll qualify the most part in a minute, but they come with a profile that you can learn what this child has experienced in their life. So for example, we got the profile of a child one time that said, this child has been in trouble for hurting animals. Okay, If you don't have animals in your home, this might be a behavior that just due to the nature of it, it's not going to present itself. But in my home, at the time, we had four little dogs. And for me, I'm a dog lover, I'm a kid lover, I'll take anyone that needs a home. And what I had to realize, though, is if that child harms my dog, we're going to have a problem here. Mm -hmm. So that child is not a good fit for my home. You know, some kids come with violence that was done to them, and so they, in turn, exposed violence to other kids. That, for us, was not acceptable. Um, if they've started fires, for example, that's not acceptable in my home. Um, and so it's about knowing the behaviors that you can and can't put up with. Um, Aside from that, we were pretty open to things like, you know, race. Um, we were open to gender. We were open to part of the town they come from, part of the state they come from. Um, that wasn't a concern for us. But it really was knowing the behaviors that you are willing to correct. Because many of the kids in the system, the thing that they suffer from collectively is they all have experienced trauma from being removed from their biological family. 
that trauma gets manifested in different ways. Some kids are just sad and it's, they are, you know, have a broken heart. Other kids, they're angry and they act out. Um, so it's knowing that when you get this child, oftentimes they're just responding at their young age to what has been done to them and knowing what your capacity is for helping them through that situation. So there's educational needs that they're gonna have. Many of them are delayed. There's behavioral challenges that some come with that you're gonna to have to modify. But then there's always the emotional aspect of making sure that they feel connected to your home. So my daughters had a really unique challenge in the sense that, you know, they walked into a world of diversity. They've got two dads who are both white and are in a same-sex marriage, and they're adopted, and they live in a really not diverse part of town. And so for them, we had to figure out how are we going to help them because this is going to show up one day when they realize there's a lot up against me just based on who I'm living with, who I am, and where I'm at. And so a lot of it really is helping kids through the emotional acceptance of their situation. Um, so, so adopting kids is, is challenging. It's not as easy as just, you know, I, I'm going to go through the process. I can't wait to take in every child, and I'm going to love them and fix them and heal them, and it's going to be great. Um, we still frequently stay up at night and talk through, you know, why they were removed that they didn't do anything wrong, that their mother still loves them. And it's heartbreaking because we're up at midnight having these conversations and at one hand, it does make me frustrated that the mother couldn't take care of them. Uh, but on the other hand, it makes me so glad to know that they're in a safe home. So that's another thing to consider when you're, when you're taking kids into the system is know what you can put up with, knowing it's a really hard job, but also the last tip I'll say is know that Arizona has so many resources that go unused. Um, for example, that's why I recommend Arizona's Children Association as a great agency to go with because they can connect parents to all these resources um, that foster and adoptive parents need to know that they don't have to go it alone, that there's a whole community out there to, to help support them. But ultimately, what I want to leave parents with, prospective families with, is to know what you're doing and considering is extremely noble and it does help this number in Arizona go down and it does help our future generations by providing stable loving homes so that's what I would leave it with that's awesome really really solid advice well as our time is drawing to a close Centauri what have we forgotten to talk about that was it we covered a lot thanks Kevin my pleasure Anything else you'd like to get off your chest or share, sir? <laughs> Man, I feel like we got enraged at times. Feels like we, we did. shed some tears at times. <laughs> it's like, true. We covered the whole thing. Um, no, this was exciting. I really appreciate the invitation. Where can people find out about you and your campaign? You can visit www.pattersonforphoenix, all spelled out, so pattersonforphoenix.com. Also on Facebook, you can look up Patterson for Phoenix. Um, again, all spelled out Patterson for Phoenix and those are the two best places okay excellent well thank you very much Kevin I very much enjoyed it if you like what you heard please subscribe to the show leave a review and tell a friend and as always keep questioning because the struggle is real <laughs>